Stand with me, please, if you would, this morning. want to jump right in into the Gospel of Mark. I believe this is number 33, and we're just sort of jumping right along through Mark. And our series text is found in chapter 10, verse 45. We're going to do a message this morning out of 12 called Tenants, Taxes, and Truth, and uh, hope to bring some enlightenment concerning that. But before we do that, our series text is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So if you would uh, read this along with me, please. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Jesus, we are overwhelmed this morning that you were willing to lay down your life. You obeyed every jot and tittle of your Father's holy law in every way. You were tempted in all points like we, we are today, yet without sin, the Bible says. And then you willingly, in submissive obedience, you, you went to the cross and hung between heaven and earth and were lifted up and you took upon yourself the sins of the world. You became the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Jesus, we thank you that you paid the penalty for our sins. Lord, I, we just want to stop today. I, I want you to say that line with me, saints. I want you to say, Jesus, thank you, you paid for my sins. Say that right now. Jesus, thank you that you paid for my sins. So that makes it personal. And as we pray this morning, we, we acknowledge that. Thank you that as we move toward the season of resurrection, as we're looking in this portion of Mark where it's Jesus last week and he's with the disciples and he's headed to the cross, Lord, make us mindful. Help us to remember that if we're really your disciples, we'll take up our cross daily. And we can only do that because of the power of the cross that you died for us. We, we acknowledge that. We give you praise. Do what only you can do in this place, Holy Spirit. I, I can't do anything without you. But Lord, you do what you can do. And we thank you for that. We'll give you praise. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. I want to jump right in to Mark chapter 12. Uh, be reminded that we are differentiating the, the gospel and religion. Religion offers advice. The gospel is news. It's a fact of what has happened. It is the life-changing, history-making good news of Jesus Christ. So that's my introduction this morning. I'm going to jump right in. Verse 1 through Mar of Mark chapter 12. Reading from the message, this is the story about a vineyard. This is going to really be very powerful to the listeners, to the hearers, because they will definitely remember the prophet Isaiah chapter 5 where it literally says that God came down and planted a vineyard and he called that vineyard Israel, okay? And so those who have any awareness whatsoever, and this is pretty much everybody in the Jewish population, the Hebrews, Pharisees, Sadducees, the various groups are all going to get the connection that Jesus is about to make here with this story about the vineyard, okay? Verse 1, then Jesus started telling them stories. Um, a man planted a vineyard. He fenced it, dug a wine press, erected a watchtower, turned it over to the farmhands, and went off on a trip. At the time for harvest, he sent a servant back to the farmhands to collect his profits. They grabbed him, beat him up, and sent him off empty-handed. So he sent another servant. That one they tarred and feathered. He sent another, and that one they killed, and on and on many others. Some they beat up, some they killed. Finally, there was only one left, a beloved son. 
In a last-ditch effort, he sent him, thinking, Surely they will respect my son. But those farmhands saw their chance. They rubbed their hands together in greed and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all for ourselves. They grabbed him, killed him, and threw him over the fence. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Right. He'll come and clean house. Then he'll assign the care of the vineyard to others. Read it for yourselves in Scripture. The stone the masons threw out is now the cornerstone. This is God's work. We rub our eyes. We can hardly believe it. They wanted to lynch him then, then and there, but intimidated by public opinion held back. They knew the story was about them. They got away from there as fast as they could. Lord, bless the reading of your word today. Now, if you looked at this in the King James, the authorized version, the English Standard Version, probably most of the other translations, it will have used the phrase, then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And so when we talk this morning about parables, as we're going to begin to see in uh, the rest of Mark, there will be a couple more that will appear. The longest parable we've seen in this book was in Mark chapter 4. It took a little bit of time to explain. It was the whole parable about the different kinds of soils and seed uh, and the fact that there were attempts at producing a crop and there were failures because uh, the, 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 some, of, some of those on rocky soil didn't have deep enough roots. And when the sun came up and Jesus likened that to tribulation, uh, that there was not fruit produced. They had a lot of foliage, a lot of leafiness. They, they showed a lot of a religiosity about them. Uh, there were those that were dropped on the wayside and the birds came and gathered them. Certainly no fruit was produced there. And, and so you, you remember this big parable that happened back in Mark 4. And, and so it, it really gave the, the crowd this sense of expectation that, okay, we realize that there's some problems here, but there's going to be this redemptive end that's going to come. We're going to see that there's going to finally be like that big parable he told us here a while back, that there's going to be some good soil where good seed is planted and some produce a crop of 30 and 60 and 100 and fold. And so usually every time Jesus tells a parable, uh, there's, there's a woman who loses a coin and she sweeps the house and finds it. There's a, the parable of the mustard seed and it grows up and becomes a great tree and houses the, the multitudes of the nations. And every one of these parables that Jesus has told, it's always come with maybe a little bit of an edge of loss or maybe a, an edge of judgment, but it's always turned around and sort of pulled Israel out of the ditch. The, uh, the, the location that I referred to this morning when we began in Isaiah 5 literally does that very thing where God comes back to the vineyard that he sowed and he called Israel and he didn't find grapes like he wanted, but he found wild grapes and judgment came on Israel in that parable. And so Jesus goes back to this one, very different from all the others that he's told previously that really sort of seemed to finally kind of wrap things up and tie a nice bow on the end and everybody lived happily ever after in the once upon a time story that he's telling. But it doesn't happen this time. This parable of the tenants, we see that Jesus is basically speaking to Israel in recognition of the fact that they, as the covenant people of God, have been given a stewardship, a tending of the earth. Israel was intended by God to be the first fruits among the nations, the firstborn among the nation, to be 
the carrier of the light to all the nations. But as we spent a long time last week talking about the fact that it had all turned upside down, it had become a commercialized, judgmental, legalistic kind of an operation where religion reigned and the gospel was nowhere to be found. There was no grace. It was all based on a a hyper-legalistic kind of attention paid to the law instead of fully recognizing that nobody in themselves can keep the law of God and then cry out for grace, they had begun to build a series of fence laws around the law, thinking that if we'll come out from this actual law far enough, that we'll keep people from actually breaking the core. And it just keeps adding. Jesus talks about you guys don't lift a finger to help others with their burdens, but yet you throw a bunch of bricks in their own backpacks and you make it totally impossible and you make them twice more a child of hell than you are yourselves is what Jesus says in one moment of very strict judgment. And so he brings this very important parable here and when we start to talk about parables, we remember that it is the Greek word parabolos and that's going on the the screen right now, and you can see it in the Greek right there, parabolos, to the left. But then it means to hurl alongside. Balos is like ball. Okay, para means alongside. So a parable is to throw a natural story out alongside a spiritual truth. So when Jesus says once upon a time, or he starts to open a parabolos, a parable, he is hurling a natural story alongside some very important spiritual truth that he's hoping the people will have eyes to hear, to see and ears to hear, which he knows that that's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit, to open them, to open their eyes, to open their ears. That's the reason Jesus' most mentioned phrase in the Bible over and over is, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody out there had these little flapping pieces of flesh on the side of their head, but they weren't hearing. Though they were hearing, but they weren't hearing. It's kind of like my wife accuses me sometimes of having selective hearing when I say, well, I'm sorry, I never heard you. She says, oh, you heard me, you just weren't listening. And I think that's sometimes what happens to us as religious people. We're going through the motions. It certainly happens in our relationship. If it happens with my wife and I, you know that it happens with the Lord because she has an ability, Dawn has an ability to get up in my face and go, I know you hear me now. (laughs) And you know God can do that too. He can do it with circumstances. He can scream at us through circumstances that we face. And so the story begins once upon a time and they're looking for this great big tie, a bow on the end of it and everybody lived happily ever after and God blessed Israel in spite of all of their stupidity and their ignorance and their sin and all of that and it doesn't happen this time. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is speaking to them, He he refers to one of the songs of degrees or the songs of ascent. It's It's the section of Psalms where David wrote And literally three times a year when the children of Israel would move out of all of the external regions, the peripheral area all around Jerusalem, and they would march up to Jerusalem, up to Zion. It literally was up because it was elevated, okay, especially on the Temple Mount. They would go through a series and be singing along the way 15 songs of ascent from 120 through 134. And if you'll remember on Solomon's temple, there were 15 steps up to the brazen altar. And so 15 in Scripture is the number of rest. It's, it's, it's the rest we have when Jesus Christ becomes the brazen altar and He takes the, the sin of the world and He becomes the sacrifice for us. We can rest in the finished work of Christ. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 
So on the way up to Jerusalem, they're singing through all of these psalms. 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. 121, prior to that, I will look to the hills from whence comes my help. What comes from the Lord, great God Almighty who never fails. And so they're rehearsing these. And from this very segment, knowing that they were in town because of the Passover, knowing that that faithful pilgrims had been reciting and actually singing these psalms from from this whole segment that David had written, and they do it three times a year in, in, in March, April, in that whole Passover area where the lamb is slain. Fifty days later at Pentecost where they've got the first ripe fruits coming up out of the ground from their crops. And then again in the fall, September, October, mid-September to mid-October, depending on how the calendar falls. And in case you're wondering why that always changes, the Jewish calendar is lunar. It's based on a 28-day month. And so it moves, it adjusts. That's the reason why we have a different day for Easter every year is because Easter is tied to Passover. And Passover moves because the Jews are on a lunar calendar. They don't have uh, 31 or 28 days have February, whatever it is, 31 September and everybody else, whatever that little thing is you learned in the third grade. What is it, 30 days? April, June, and November. All the others have 31 except for February. See, thank you for reminding me, teachers. Um, I disconnected from my my past there for a moment. But they don't have any of those. They don't have 31-day months and 30-day months and 29-day months and all that. It is in the religious calendar. It's all based on the lunar cycle. It's a 28-day cycle, full moon, half moon. And so all of the feasts, the celebrations of the Lord, are tied to a lunar calendar. So... They're headed up to Passover. Jesus is going to go to the cross at the time of the celebration of the slain lamb because he is going to become the once and for all final sacrifice, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Say amen if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, so he is speaking some hard stories. And the bottom line of this is that the owner of the vineyard is expecting a return on his investment. Read that out loud with me. Here we go. The owner of the vineyard is expecting a return on his investment. This parable, this parabolos, this natural story with a spiritual meaning is all about stewardship. Israel has been given a stewardship. They have the oversight. They are the tenants. They don't own the land. God is the owner of the land, but he's put them in charge. They are the oikonomia. We get our English word economy from the Greek word for oikos, for house manager, for the dispensation of God, for God's distribution of His grace. It is the oikos. It is the economy where God is pouring out His grace. Well, they totally blew it. And they are called on the carpet. The owner shows up and he basically says, open the books. I want to see the accounts. I want to see what the product is. I want to recognize whether the grapes are any good. I want to see the vineyard. I want to see the wine that is being produced from this. Is the wine that Israel is supposed to be producing, is it touching the nations? Are Are they being healed and ministered to and blessed? Are they getting light in their darkness? Are they getting salt in the middle of corruption? Are there is their wine being poured into their wounds so that they can heal? Jesus comes and asks some hard questions. He's demanding accountability. Jesus is the son in this story who has shown up for his inheritance. As we said the last few weeks when we were talking about this, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to God. 
Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they who dwell therein. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, The earth is the Lord's. Okay, it belongs to Him. That's the reason why when you uh, really begin to understand from a biblical perspective, there really shouldn't be any property tax. And I'm not going to go political here. But when you look at this from a, uh, a biblical standpoint, what humanism has done in radically turning things around and changing things is that it's trying to disinherit people who rightfully own. And really when we get technical about it, we don't own anything. God owns all of it, though we may temporarily hold the deed to something for a generation. We are to be stewards over it. Israel was to be the light to the world. They were to steward the earth. What God started in Eden and Adam and Eve blew, God intended for Israel to take that and literally spread it over the whole world until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covered the earth as the waters covered the sea and Israel blew it. And so God basically says through His Son Jesus Christ, He sent in a last-ditch effort His Son to see if they say surely they'll respect the Son, they'll respect the air. And they took him, they killed him, and they threw him over the fence is what it says in the message. Jesus is coming and he's showing up and he's calling the tenants into question. Okay, we can, we can say amen and go home and really not get it at all. We can, we can look down our noses in a judgmental way at what Israel did and we can say, okay, how does this apply to us as the church? We want to ask a couple more questions. Beyond just seeing that God took the kingdom from Israel and put it into the hands of the church... His purpose is to advance His kingdom and now His instrument is the church that He uses to advance the kingdom of God, to preach, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years, spreading the light. We've taken up that call. There have been seasons where we've done a pretty good job. There have been seasons where we have radically failed. And there have been seasons where the Holy Spirit comes and blows a wind of conviction and maybe even a little bit of judgment. And there's a passing of a baton from one generation to another and He stirs up and sends revival to some young ones who for whatever reason kind of are rejected and they're sort of outside the camp of typical traditional maybe denominationalism. They start doing things a different way and God always seems to show up outside the camp, outside the expected, accepted group. When you feel like you've got everything, all your ducks in a row and the, the last piece of stained glass painted properly and we don't hear anything wrong from that. There's, there's a wonderful... So long as we can take all of that and we can not be caught up in the accoutrements, the accoutrement, as the French say, of religion and all the religious trappings. Let me just say this. I believe this year that God is going to bless us to break ground on our property. But I'm going to tell you right now, I would rather stay right where I am and have the full presence of the Holy Spirit continue to move and people's lives be changed than to get in a building anywhere and it be amazing and it be glorious and the roof not leak and have the best sound and lighting system and the most comfortable seats and get into that and start looking at that like thinking we have arrived. We've got to stay hungry wherever we are. We've got to stay hungry for God to move. Come on, somebody. So... Jesus has shown up and he's basically saying, guys, you've missed it. Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands, strong leader in parliament from 1879 through about 1920, and he's serving in parliament and he's prime minister and he's a strong born-again Calvinist Christian and he's preaching the importance 
in, in the church that he's a part of and he's leading the nation. This is a famous quote from Kuiper who was the prime minister at the time when he said this. He said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Hear that. I'm going to say it again. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everybody say, It all belongs to God. So the Lord is showing up. And now, before we get judgmental over Israel, we've got to realize the church is now called to steward the earth. We're to be salt and light. We're to make new wine in His presence where it brings joy and gladness to the heart of man. That's what's going on in here. I don't know if you know this, but all the grapes of God get together in the vineyard and, and we get a little bit of squeezing going on and the new wine begins to flow in praise and worship and the joy of the Lord fills your heart. We're not talking about a real grape and, and purple juice here or red juice. Are you hearing me? We're talking about the wine of the Holy Spirit. And so we've got a natural story with a spiritual meaning. Now, I, I want to give some application that is even more specific than that because everybody can say, hey, yes, thank God we're a part of a church that is doing things in, in missions. We're supporting people that are taking the gospel to the world. We, we, we've got Micah doing an 11-nation tour. We're supporting Matt Black. We've got, uh, we, we, we've got folks on college campuses that we're supporting other nations of the world that we're sending money to, that we're praying for, that we bring in. And, and, and we're doing some great things in terms of touching and speaking to the critical issues here in the Delta. We've just begun to do that, and we're reaching out in faith, trusting God to do a greater job, to, to meet some of the needs, to, to pull down the, the mentality of poverty and ignorance and and, and the misunderstanding of this whole religious thing called Southern churchianity. And, and we're just we're trying to keep it real at victory. And you know what? We can just stop and go, man, I'm so excited to be in a church where it's real. And, and, and the pastor talks about the fact that he's not perfect and nobody else in the, in the room is perfect and, and only Jesus is perfect. And you know what? You, 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 just because you're not necessarily right in every way, you need to worship God for everything that's right in Him and not stop worshiping because of everything that might be wrong in you. Come on, somebody. And so we get in a place and we hear that and we understand that grace is working on the inside of us and we can stop and say, man, I'm, I'm a part of a church that really is stewarding, stepping out to steward Crittenden County and, and to see a bigger vision to steward the earth and that we'll stand before God one day and be accountable. And, and, and we're right now with all of our faith and all of our hearts are starting to do some great things. And it's, we can be caught up in the middle of all of this, and lose sight that there is a much more specific question that it comes down to. This is the application for you this morning. You are to steward your individual calling and your destiny. Every person sitting in this room this morning, God made you. He made you who you are. Most of the time you get focused on an area of lack or a deficiency. And insecurity arises. And let me just say to you right now, insecurity is the greatest it's the ultimate insult to God because He made you who you are and how you are. And don't you figure He equipped you with the personality type and the giftings and the skill set that He intended you to be able to fulfill a destiny? And most of the time you're listening to the lying voice of the enemy who tells you how much you're not something, how much you're not this or you're not that instead of stepping back and just saying, you know what, I may not be, but I serve a Savior who is everything that I need. Come on, somebody. He's the same one who took a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish and fed 20,000. Surely he can take these gifts he gave me and help me to do what he's called me to do. 
So you are to steward your individual calling and destiny. I would answer, ask you this question. What is your vineyard? It may be a classroom. It may be some kids that you, once in a while you'd just like to double up your fist and lay hands on them in the name of Jesus. It may be your own children that I know nobody in the room ever feels that way about. It may be a marriage that you're having to actually get down into the trenches and work on and steward. And some accountability has, has, has brought some of that stuff to your attention. It may be a business. It may be a job. I don't know what it is. It may be a career goal. It may be a dream in your heart. It may be to do something creative, to paint or to write music or uh, to be an entrepreneur and start a business. Whatever it is that God has put in your heart that, that the enemy keeps telling you you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not educated enough, you're not enough. All of those lies of the devil, you've got to stop listening to him and start listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He says, I have called you, I have made you, and I have commissioned you. You are to steward your individual calling and destiny. And God will come and he will be expecting a return on his investment. You know, God has given you gifts in your life. It's when you give them back to him that you're fulfilling your destiny when you dedicate them to the purpose of the kingdom of God. So, point number one, we're seeing that the owner of the vineyard is coming and he's expecting a return on his investment. A couple things here. I'm not going to take time to read this section, but the whole next section is all about uh, a couple of different people that are coming to Jesus and that are challenging him about paying some taxes. If you read uh, Mark 12, 13 through 17, you've got two different groups of people. The Pharisees and the followers of Herod, the Herodians, are coming to Jesus and they're basically stirring him up and they're trying to, to sort of catch him. They're, they're, they're trying to catch him in a hard question and they're going to ask him, they're going to say this, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the question really doesn't have a lot of weight until you understand who these two groups of people are. The Pharisees are all about the liberty of the Jewish nation. And there is something way down stuck in their craw because of all the tax farmers that the Roman Empire have hired among their Jewish brothers who are basically IRS agents gone crazy, gone wild. And they're, they're charging these exorbitant rates of interest saying your tax for this piece of property or your tax to live in this city to be a part of the Roman Empire is it may be $10, but because I am a tax farmer and I have bought the right to be able to do this, your tax is 20. And so many times they were doubling, sometimes even tripling the amount of taxes. So the Jews had a deep hatred. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, there was the story of the little short guy who's up in the tree. You remember Zacchaeus? He's, he's a tax man. And, and I say this because we're all looking right around the corner here. Some of you may have already filed your taxes. Some of you are putting it off as long as you can because you want to keep the money in your pocket and out of Uncle Sam's pocket as long as you possibly can. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Tax avoidance is okay. It's tax evasion where we get in trouble. And so they come to Jesus, and the Pharisees are all about the liberty of the Jews. The Herodians are all, all big government people. They're all supporting Herod and his campaign to keep everything great between him and the, the Roman emperor. And so the Herodians are for big taxes. The Pharisees are against. This is like getting some really heavy ideological Democrats and Republicans in the same room and throwing out a big question like a, like a piece of raw steak to some dogs. 
And so the Pharisees and Herodians both come and they're trying to bait Jesus. And Jesus is not in any way going to be sucked into this political debate. And he says, give me a coin. And so they hand him a coin. He said, look at the coin. He says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. Give me a denarius. He holds it up and he says, whose image is on it? And they say, Caesar's image is on it. And he says, well, then the answer is this. Given to Caesar that which is Caesar's and given to God that which is God's. Now, you know, some of you are going to wonder why in the world I would take the time to say this. But sometimes among believers, we are strong on our rights and we're short on our responsibilities. You want to be people of integrity. You want to be ethical. If you owe the government, you need to pay your taxes. You need to do the right thing. Too many times, let me just say this, if we would do the right thing, when the audit comes, when the spotlight is turned on, we wouldn't have to sweat. We wouldn't have to fear. You know, I, I've learned the hard way that if I obey the speed limit when I'm going down the road, I don't have to slam on my brakes when I see a trooper sitting over on the side. <laughs> Now, let me just stop for a minute before some of you go, now I know him, I know how heavy his foot is. Do I always do that? If I, if I gave you that impression, then I would be lying. So let me just tell you, God forgive me for my sin right now. And he's, I've slid through by the skin of my teeth more than once. But the principle still stands. If I'm doing right, I don't have to fear the one who is going to call me, who's going to make me be accountable as to whether or not I'm doing right. Somebody say amen. And, 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 and hear this, I, I, I can't get too far without showing you this principle. It's amazing how when you start doing something right and you start bringing change and people are being blessed and, and the kingdom of God is being advanced, the religious folks who've otherwise held the power for a long time will, will band together. People who have been your enemy and who've been natural enemies sometimes will band together. Over the years, I've seen folks get offended at me or maybe one of our other leaders in the local church and they get upset and, 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 and I have seen them join ranks with somebody else that I knew they've said out of their mouth they didn't like and couldn't stand. But both of those parties were offended at the same time, maybe at me or at this church, and all of a sudden they became best friends and they're hanging out together. Why? Because they have an offense in common and they're nursing that wound and oh, it's a bitter taste. So the Pharisees don't even like the Herodians and the Herodians think the Pharisees are nuts. But when it comes to taking Jesus down, they'll join ranks and coalesce together. They'll, they'll start a coalition in order to be able to try to go challenge Jesus and catch Him, make Him trip up. But the wisdom of God brings Him through because He is the wisdom of God. So if you're in a situation where you're seeing people that you know that's been hurt or offended or whatever have gotten upset with you, join ranks with somebody else and they never even did like each other, then you know you're probably doing something right. What's the application here? Be faithful in the little things. The big things will take care of themselves. Look at your neighbor and say, be faithful in the little things. You know, we shouldn't have to say this. You know, uh, pay your bills on time. I read a great quote by Martin Luther uh, the other day and, and uh, I tweeted it, I sent it to Abby and because she's, she's written papers and is a huge Luther fan, um, gave a presentation at Belmont about Luther and really just been into his life and how he stood against this huge Goliath religious institution. And, and he wrote something one day and he said, if you want to be a Christian cobbler, don't put crosses on the shoes. Just make good shoes. 
Some of you are looking at me going, is that it? <laughs> It'll hit you in a minute. It'll hit you in a minute. Think about it. Martin Luther said, if you want to be a Christian cobbler, don't put crosses on the shoes. Make good shoes. See, because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're forgiven and we can just get by with whatever we want to in our workplace. We ought to show up early. We ought to have a right attitude all the time. We ought to be praying for our boss. Because you are a Christian, you should be producing the best product. You should be uh, an example to the rest of the other employees, not gossiping, not in the break room, tearing down the supervisor or, or, or starting a little uprising or a mutiny on the bounty or all of those different kinds of things that sometimes Christians get involved in. I got all day. I'm waiting on an amen. <laughs> am I preaching or am I preaching this morning? If we want to be, if we want to be Christian, whatever you're, you do, first of all, I think it's just kind of a, a ridiculous notion sometimes. Somebody says, well, go to him. He's a Christian mechanic. And I, I want to go, well, is Christian mechanics a different way to do mechanics? Than, I mean, it's kind of weird how we talk sometimes. Uh, it, it, really, we want to sanctify everything we do, everything I do, 24-7, seven days a week, not just on Sunday morning when you come up in here and put your church face on. <laughs> bless you. How are you? Oh, bless, just doing great. <laughs> Business is on the rocks. I'm being audited by the IRS. I'm going through a divorce, but I'm not going to say that. Bless you, just doing great. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's not real. Jesus says, be real. What Caesar gives to Caesars. Now, in this day and time, a lot of times we're giving, we're giving Capital One and we're giving Citibank theirs and then God's getting left out. I'm not going to stop and preach on tithing here or giving to the house of the Lord. Everybody, you know, we, don't, we say very, very little about that around here, but it's not just you prioritize or, or, or make Caesar primary, but give God what is His. And if it's, just, if it's just a widow's farthing, make sure you give something because it's the act of giving where God can put the, the whole principle of sowing and reaping into effect and He can cause the windows of heaven to open and the blessing of God to come into your life. Come on, somebody. Amen. I love it. So be faithful in little things, and he says the big things will take care of themselves. I've got about five minutes here, so we'll finish. I do want to read this section. Mark 12, 18 through 27. The Bible says some Sadducees. Now you've got the other side, the other party coming against him now. Some Sadducees, the party that denies any possibility of resurrection, came up and asked, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man dies and leaves a wife but no child, his brother is obligated to marry the widow and have children. Well, there once were seven brothers. The first took a wife, he died childless. And it goes all the way through the story. I'm going to skip a little bit for time's sake. We get all the way down to seven brothers and the woman's never had a child. First of all, this is an outrageous story. Okay, they're trying to set Jesus up. They don't believe in the resurrection in the first place. Okay? All seven took their turn, but no child. Finally, the wife died. When they are raised at the resurrection, whose wife is she? All seven were her husband. And they're sitting back going, Now, answer that one. And Jesus basically just says, Guys, it comes down to the Word of God and the power of God. He, he goes on to say in verse 24, you're way off base. Here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. Two, you don't know how God works. Everybody say the Word of God and the power of God. 
You don't know your Bibles. You don't know how God works. After the dead are raised up, we're past the marriage business as it is with the angels now. All our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. And regarding the dead, whether or not they're raised, don't you ever read the Bible. How God at the bush said to Moses, I am, not was, the God of Abraham. Everybody say, I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He says, the living God is God of the living. I love that. Say that out loud with me. The living God is God of the living, not the dead. He says, you are way, way off base. Now, the point is this. What what does all this mean? This is where a lot of confusion comes in the little phrase where it says, and then you will be like the angels in heaven. And this is where people tell their children when a loved one passes, well, they got wings and they're in heaven with Jesus. And that's a nice thing to tell a child. But the child grows up not correcting that the way he at some point does the Santa Claus myth. Okay? And so he thinks that, hey, when, when I go to heaven, I'm going to get this great big set of wings. And that, nowhere in the Bible do you find that. First of all, angels are a completely separately created group that don't have the opportunity to know the presence uh, and the power of redemption the way you and I do. And, and, and though they are made by God and carry the mark of God to some degree, they are not image bearers with the Imago Dei, with stamped with the very image of God the way you and I are. Even in our brokenness and our sin, there is still the image of God there. Somebody say amen. And so we many times run into all kinds of issues of confusion. The Sadducees are the modernists. They're the deists of their age and they're pulling out a very obscure passage from the law of Moses called the Leverite law which basically says that if my brother were to die and he has no children I'm supposed to bring his wife under my covenantal protection and she's to become my wife and the whole purpose was to maintain the legal representation of ownership, that there would be an inheritance, that there would be a name carried on, that his generation wouldn't die out because you are declared through the generation of your children, okay? Because you've had children, that demonstrates that you were alive. And so it was this covenantal issue with the land and the inheritance that that God had basically saying, we don't want to lose any families. So if, if, if Joe Smith my brother, my pretend brother at this point, dies and his wife doesn't have any children, then she becomes my wife and I'm to continue Joe's family name and line so that there is an inheritance for children and children that go on on and on, so on and so forth. And so they're setting up this law of inheritance and they're putting it in some kind of radically, totally ridiculous way with seven brides for seven brothers. Kind of, a, kind of a, an idea here. And Jesus just says, guys, you're just totally just making stuff up. This is ridiculous. You don't know your Bible. You don't know the Word of God. And you don't know the power of God. You're way off base. Let me just say this. This application might surprise you. Application for your life this morning. They're challenging. They They didn't come trying to get Jesus to figure it out because they started from the beginning not believing in the resurrection whatsoever. So they're trying to challenge him. They're trying to act like folks who are willing to be convinced, sort of appearing like they have an open mind, going, okay, show us how this works and maybe we'll believe. No, they're unbelievers from the very beginning. The whole point in the application is this. Read it out loud with me. Here we go. There is always someone to challenge God's Word and to doubt God's power in your life. 
you're doing something that God has called you to do, there will always be somebody that will come around and go, and they will be the voice of the devil. Well, what if? Jesus is in the wilderness, and Satan comes to him and says, if you're really the son of God, then. Same way he did Adam and Eve in the garden, did God say. He's always questioning, challenging the word of God or the power of God. And if you're convinced about the word of God, he'll try to tell you the lie and say, well, it's fine to go ahead and believe that. It was great. God did that a long time ago, but he doesn't do that for anybody anymore today. That's a half lie. But a half lie is enough to keep you from believing God's ability to do for you and God's love to show for by doing for you that his power is real and his word is true. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. There's always someone to challenge God's word and to doubt God's power in your life.